Just as we stand, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you on the stillness of this night that though you were the lamb who was slain, you died in our place. You are now enthroned on high. Thank you that we worship a living God. Thank you that the resurrection is true. And thank you that through your spirit you give resurrection life to our bodies. Father God, we thank you that you created us to be people who give you glory. That our praise as we live out our life, all of our life for your glory, that's our battle cry to a broken, lost world. That's our battle cry against Satan and all his devices. That your name is to be lifted up. Your name is to be praised. And we thank you, Father, that you do reign victorious. You are the glorious Lord of all. Your name is Jesus. And so we just lift your name on high tonight and we worship you as our Lord. And we thank you that you're here now with us by your spirit. Amen. Uh, Last week uh, we were looking at uh, ministering grace and uh, love. And I said that perhaps next week we would um, hear just little snippets, um, little examples of how you sought by God's strength to minister grace and love in your community and the places you worked and perhaps encouraging each other with some blessing. Um, Jackie is going to go first because she wanted to speak last week and I said hang on until next week. Um, but I'll just run around um, rather than you having to get up. But it'd be just lovely just to share little snippets of your week of how, as you shared grace and love, uh, you saw God at work. This wasn't so much how I uh, shared grace and love. Does this on? Yeah. Um, but it was how you as a fellowship were showing grace and love, and you might not have realised it. Um, at my parenting course, um, lots of people from the church made cakes. And you might think that's quite a small thing, but it had a real impression on the people who came to the parenting course that they were just amazed at the fellowship and love that people had in the church. They weren't coming to the course, but that they were, people were providing cakes. They were just amazed at that love and grace. Thanks, Jackie. Any other people want to share a little story from this week? Uh, or if you struggle to minister love and grace and want to share that struggle, that'd be great to hear as well, just so we can be praying for you. Jeff, great. This new layout's a nightmare, isn't it? It's like uh, Crystal Maze. <laughs> I got you this morning. I've got you again. It's like a trap. It's a humorous one, really. Um, Last night when we, I mean, last Sunday evening, went to the car park and, you know, the wind was blowing and they were playing tennis. So this ball comes flying over right into into the car park. So I threw it back in. I got into the car to drive away and the ball came over again. So I stopped the car, get out and throw the ball over again. So I thought that was just a little example of, you know, it doesn't have to. I could have just driven away. Well, we all know how Jeff gets his exercise. That's good. Anybody else? Ah, oh, Vera, great. We need a sort of mic system like the House of Commons, don't we? And then we can all just speak from where we are. It's partly a struggle. I want to share it with you. <clears throat> I have somebody, um, uh, personal troubles with somebody, uh, not from the church. And um, all through the week, I've been praying every day when I woke up, my prayer was that, oh God, let me have an opportunity to show some love towards this person give, give me some opportunity to do it to show your love not not me not I but your love and nothing happened and just now I was thinking that oh it's actually quite a, a failing but maybe not because every day I prayed for this person and I, I am pretty sure that prayer is probably the greatest love and grace we can show to each other Thanks for that. It's a great story. Anybody else? 
That's cool. It's just great just to hear a little bit from last week and um, just encourage you to keep looking back over your weeks and seeing how God is at work. Um, brilliant. Neil, would you be able to read to us, please? And then uh, we're going to just uh, turn up 1 Peter, please. And we're going to look at 1 Peter. Just spend a few moments looking at chapter 3. Yes, it's 1 Peter 2, um, starting at verse 9 through to verse 17. If you've got a church Bible, it's 1, 2, 1, 8. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the Emperor. Shall we pray together as we just spend some time looking at that short passage? Heavenly Father, as we consider tonight uh, the role that we have in helping to mould and shape the culture around us, I pray that these few verses would help us to see who we are in your sight, and that would give us encouragement to be who we are in the culture in which we live, um, that people around us might see and might be changed as a result. So please help us now as we come to this passage. Amen. Um, are you familiar with the, the uh, phrase worldview? What's your worldview? Okay, um, it's kind of a, a common way of speaking. A worldview is kind of think of it a bit like a lens through which you see the world. We've all got a different worldview. Um, our backgrounds feed into our worldview. The things we've been taught, uh, perhaps the things we haven't been taught, the experiences we ha- have had, they all give us a different lens through which we see life. Um, and that way of seeing leads to the, what, what we believe, and what we believe affects our behaviour. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Um, it helps shape culture too. And you think about culture, I'm not so much thinking sort of African culture and English culture, something like that, but more the culture in which we live and in which we work. Uh, in many ways, that's a kind of moving target, isn't it? Uh, particularly in Britain at the moment, uh, there's so many different influences. We're such an international place that our culture is changing all the time around us. Um, technology is changing the culture in which we live. Uh, our world is moving faster and faster all the time. Um, the increase in information is growing all the time and so our culture is changing and so we have to keep adjusting this lens that we look through keep adjusting our worldview to try and understand uh, the world in which we live i think in many ways we're now living in britain in a kind of post-christian culture uh, if historically maybe two generations ago three generations ago we were, we were able to sort of quite positively affirm this is a christian country the christian west I think it's much harder to do that now, uh, particularly if you're watching the news this week and you're seeing how 
I mean, I've got the little newspaper cutting that I think Wellesley might have referred to this morning. I wasn't here. Did he refer to this? I saw it on the pulpit. But we were, we were looking at this together a week or two ago. And, uh, you know, this little, the, the church saying to Christians, don't preach because it might put people off. Uh, think of other ways to encourage people coming in. It's kind of shocking, but we're living in a post-Christian culture in many ways. It's going to get harder and harder for us to be Christians in our society. Um, and so we have to consider all the time, how do we see are we seeing the world in which we live through God's eyes or through our own? Um, I, I remember talking to Jeff uh, Wood um, a few weeks ago, probably a few months ago, about um, the trades world in which he works and lives. And I remember, Jeff, you were sharing a bit about the dishonesty often and some of the pressure that you were feeling from your boss to do things that were dishonest. And there were times where you just said, I won't do it. And you were feeling real pressure at the time that you could lose your job. And I remember we had a bit of a heart-to-heart about it. That's just one tiny example of the pressure we're all going to face in uh, being Christians in our culture today. Um, I think it's quite scary. Um, I'm also quite excited by it in the sense that we're going to have to count the cost now as Christians. And that's quite exciting because we perhaps haven't had to in this country that much up to now. But to be a Christian in the next generation is going to be harder than probably it was last Um, So in that sense, it's quite exciting for us seeing how God will be at work. But in many ways, we need to be challenging our culture. I'll just give you some sort of snapshots of our culture. I think this is sort of things I reflect on this week. We live in a bit of a kind of eye culture, don't we? Uh, The iPhone, the iPad, uh, Facebook, which ultimately is about portraying an image of me that I want people to see and hiding all the stuff I don't want people to see. These things all have good functions, but we do live in an eye world where a lot of attention is focused on me, on self. I think in some senses we live in a blame culture. Uh, There's a lot of people who fail to take responsibility. Um, I think as men we're particularly guilty of that, not leading in our homes, uh, not loving and serving. And we've heard a bit from Jeff last week about the, or recent weeks about the breakdown of family, the number of children who are um, are for fostering or adoption because the breakdown of families, and a lot of that stems from um, men and women as well who have not been leading, taking responsibility. I think we live in a justice culture. Uh, we kind of stand on our rights. A lot of our attention is spent on kind of how do I better myself and uh, just pursuing what makes my life more comfortable. And uh, we're not necessarily great at serving other people. Um, I, I think we live in a gossip culture. I'm more and more struck by how we share amongst ourselves things about other people, um, but don't like calling it gossip or lies. It's kind of just information. But actually, if we're being brutally honest with ourselves, we're just being unkind to people. Uh, but there's a lot of gossip that goes on. A lot of gossip in the office, a lot of gossip at the school gate, a lot of gossip amongst mates. Um, it's not a good thing. We probably live in a, a power culture, the influence of technology. Um, we're all increasingly upwardly mobile, opportunities to travel all the time. Um, in, information is growing, our knowledge and access to information grows all the time, and so... I think a lot of our world now thinks that we are omniscient, we know it all, we're omnipotent, we've got all power. And to a certain extent, technology and information uh, can create that. Um, so we're kind of squeezing God out because we don't really have a need for God in our, in our mind and our culture because technology and information and science can do everything that God perhaps once did. That's how some people think. And we do live in a promotion culture, don't we? Uh, I'm not talking about the sort of promotion in work because that can be a good thing, can be a bad thing, but just... We always want to be one up on someone else. We want our life to be easier. We want to be at the top of the pile. Um, We don't often like to serve. That's just my reflections this week of diagnosis of some of the things within our culture. Um, But there's lots of good stuff. 
There was a book written by an American called Richard Niebuhr in 1951. It's quite a complicated book, and uh, I don't suppose many here have read it, and I wouldn't suggest having a go because it's really complicated. But he wrote a book called Christ and Culture. Um, People who've been at Theological College, it's a sort of key book that they look at to try and work out what's the relationship between this world and the world to come, the kind of continuity, discontinuity between this world and the world to come. It's quite difficult, but it's worth thinking about. I've tried to summarize it really simply, but here are five kind of responses that he gives in the book. Just have a think as I do this, as I describe it. Um, Is this the way that you view culture? Uh, Perhaps you view it a mix of these five, but here he goes. He says, some people throughout history as Christians have kind of had a kind of Christ against culture view. So it's kind of um, the Christian worldview is clashing with the pagan worldview and it's kind of vying. And what we believe as Christians is so counter what the world says and there's this sort of clash. Uh, Perhaps you feel that, uh, Christ against culture. He also speaks of Christ of culture which is almost the polar opposite. It's kind of this desire to see God in the world that we are and celebrate all that is good. See God in the arts, see God in technology, um, see God in beauty of creation and celebrate all that is good in the world. Uh, And there's so so much to be said for that. So Christ against culture, this kind of vying or uh, Christ of culture. Lots in our world is still good despite its brokenness. The third category is a kind of Christ above culture. Um... It's this idea, really, that life now is just preparation for the life to come. Um, So in many ways, the focus is all on the spiritual now, but the physical doesn't really matter. That this life is simply a preparation for the life to come. Um, Nothing in this world will continue into the world to come. That's that kind of understanding. Um, The fourth one is Christ and culture in paradox. Um, It's this idea that life is a kind of struggle between faith and unbelief. And you're kind of in the middle and... We're grappling with the difficulties of life and the positives of life. I guess we've all experienced that. And the last one is uh, Christ transforming culture. And the big focus here is on the gospel renewing this world now and making it a more God-honoring place. This is really a reflection on how Christians have responded to culture across time. I think in many ways there's something true in all of those things. But each of us will probably reflect and think that's more my approach to culture Um, Yet, there's also lots and lots to celebrate in culture that's good. We're going to watch a video shortly, and in it, um, Mark Green asked the question, think about your front line where you spend a lot of your time. It's probably your workplace, or um, if you're not in paid employment, where you spend your time in your leisure activities. He says, uh, what's positive about that culture, and what's negative? Uh, And we're going to have a reflection on that. But perhaps just for a second, turn to the person next to you before we watch the video. Just turn to the person next to you. um, Tell them just in one line what your front line is. Where are you going to be this time tomorrow? It won't be this time. It'll be in the morning tomorrow. You'll probably be having a coffee or uh, dinner this time tomorrow. But in the morning tomorrow, what will you be doing? What's your front line? Just try and pick one thing about that culture in which you're immersed that's good and one thing that you think is negative. Just have a little chat with your partner for a minute. Uh, just, just out of interest, I'd be interested to know whether you find it easier to identify the positives in the culture of your front line or the negatives. So can you stick your hand up if you find it easier to see the positives? That's interesting. And then the, stick your hand up negative just to compare. There's probably it's more or less 50-50, but a few more... Um, a few more people seeing negatives. It's just interesting, isn't it? 
Um, I think that's in some ways illuminating in terms of where we're at as a culture, that it's easier to spot the things that are difficult in our culture that are great against uh, being a Christian than seeing positives. Um, before we watch our video, just turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I just want us to see these verses that Neil read earlier, because I think they could be really helpful for us as we think about how we can engage and mold the culture around us. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. I, I would love to teach through this at some point, because I think this would be a great letter for us to look at as a church. If you go back to chapter 1, uh, Peter tells us who he's writing to, and it says in verse 1, uh, he's writing to God's elect. Um, they're just God's people, and he describes them as exiles scattered throughout the provinces of all these different places. So this is a letter that's written to Christians who have been scattered through the persecution in the early church all over the ancient world. And it's probably a sort of circular letter that was sent round. And so he's writing to these Christians who are kind of in little pockets, surrounded by a culture that's completely godless. And I imagine a lot of the Christians then were feeling a bit like perhaps you feel on your front line when you look around your office and you go, so I'm just little me. And I'm the only Christian here, and what difference could I possibly make? So he writes to these sort of scattered Christians, and one of the big emphases in the letter is to encourage these Christians. So you come to chapter 2. What does he say about you in verse 9? He says to these scattered Christians who are probably very discouraged, feeling very alone, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I think that's just a lovely little description. Um, if someone said to you, um, who are you? Describe yourself. You'd probably either describe yourself in terms of what you physically look like, or if you'd rather not do that, by your income, your job, because that's often what defines our identity. But you look in God's word, the defining thing that the Apostle Paul particularly, and Peter here, uses to define our identity is our relationship to God. And here he speaks to all these uh, struggling Christians who are struggling to know their identity. They're struggling to see how they can have an impact in a broken, fallen world. And he says to them, you are God's special possession. Imagine you're on your front line tomorrow morning and you're thinking, here's little me. What difference could I make? And you just remember that. God kind of looks at you and smiles and puts a metaphorical arm around you and goes, you are my special possession. You're not in this office by mistake. You're not in this classroom by mistake. Uh, you're not working there where no one can see you on your own by mistake. You're my treasured possession. And I've put you there for this time and season because I've got a role for you to do. That's kind of what he'd say to you, I'm sure. And what is that role, verse 9? It goes on. That role is that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what he's saying is, discourage Christians who can't see your identity, you don't know what your role is. Let me tell you, you're loved by God, you're his special possession, and I have put you where I've put you so that you can declare the praises of God. In other words, you, you are living in a world, I'm living in a world uh, of an I culture, a blame culture, a justice culture, a gossip culture, a power culture, a promotion culture. He's saying, I've put you there deliberately for you to declare the praises of God in that place. In other words, I'm going to use you to declare to a broken world that is desperately searching for meaning, there is a purpose bigger than what you're currently living for. That is what he declares is your purpose and my purpose. And you see, it's because we see differently, our worldview has been changed, if you've come to put your trust in Christ, that that's possible. So do you see there in verse 9, we declare the praises of him who's done what he's called us out of darkness 
that culture that we've just described that we're living amongst. And he's called us into his wonderful light. He's shown us that there's a better way. Not living for myself and my self-promotion and my glory and my success and my happiness, but living for his. And when you become a Christian believer, suddenly you're liberated from having to live for yourself because you realize there's something bigger and better to live for. Well, that's what he talks about in verse 9. And he gives a kind of theological reason behind that in verse 10. Do you see it? He says again, once you were not a people. You were just these random people placed on the planet and you had no sense of identity or purpose. But now, he says, you are the people of God. Uh, This is the number one thing that defines who you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, little you, tomorrow morning, feeling really insignificant, I can't make a difference wherever God's placed me. He's saying, no, but you're mine, you're my treasure possession. I put you there for a reason. And your ultimate goal is to give praise to God. To live out your life using the skills that you have to honour him. But notice how it goes on. It's in light of this sort of theological truth, who you belong to, who you are, what he's done for you, that you're then able to live out your life to reflect that. It's everything we've been doing in in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, 1 and 2, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And he goes on in verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, why are these people foreigners and exiles? Well, because they're the people who, back in chapter 1, have been scattered all over the world and are the little me sitting in my office, not realising I can have any influence in the world for God's glory. We feel like foreigners and exiles, don't we? But we've been called out of darkness into the light. And that should give us great joy. And what he says here is, essentially, when you've turned away from darkness and come into the light, don't turn back. Don't go back to living this old way, eye at the centre, blame culture, justice culture, promotion culture, power culture, gossip culture. You've been rescued from all of that and brought to a far better place. So don't turn back. Which is why he says, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It's this kind of battle that goes on in every Christian. The world that we were once in, that we've been rescued from, this new kingdom, God's kingdom. But you don't sort of get rescued and become a Christian believer and then everything's fine and you're completely here. We're living in God's kingdom but still in a broken world, in amongst people who don't know God. And the challenge then is which direction are we facing as our lives battle? Am I facing that way, the darkness, my old way of life, or am I facing this way? Because the direction we face is the key thing to how we'll be able to get through the rub of life with all its ups and downs. And then notice how he goes on, verse 12. Uh, Peter wants his people that he's speaking to to recognise that um, they will face opposition. It talks about them accusing them of doing wrong. You live um, as a countercultural Christian. If you live with the values, kingdom values, wherever you are on your front line, you'll stick out like a sore thumb. Or if you don't stick out like a sore thumb, someone will notice and think it's ridiculous. It'll be hard because being a Christian is really tough. But he says, live such good lives among the pagans. It doesn't mean be a goody two-shoes because that's not really going to help at all. It's just going to help people uh, reinforce the stereotype that's all Christians are. 
but live such good lives. It's the ministering love and grace of last week. It's the serving other people when there's nothing to take back for yourself. Live such good lives among the pagans, amongst these people who still live in darkness, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, why why do you go to church? Why do you believe all this stuff? It's so outdated. Science disproved Christianity. Why do you do it? They accuse you of doing wrong, but they then see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. And when people see the difference that you who stepped out of darkness into the light have, suddenly they'll say, I want a bit of that. What is it about that person in the office when they're under real, real pressure, but they still have a peace about them? What is it about that person who has been knocked time and time again in their work situation or their front line, but they keep getting up, they keep going? What is it about this person who could have gone for self-promotion, it's all about them, and yet they've stopped to serve me when I was struggling? And they look at it and go, that's just so countercultural. why? And suddenly, they're seeing your good deeds and beginning in their heart, and perhaps later verbally to you, seeing your good deeds and giving glory to your Father in heaven. So I just want to encourage you with that. Tomorrow you will go onto your front line and you'll probably be feeling very isolated all on your own, living in a culture that is completely and utterly godless. But God wants to say to you tomorrow morning, you are my special possession. I love you. And I've put you where I've put you. And I've put you there for a reason. Remember where I've brought you from. Remember where I've brought you to. And live your life now with all your opportunities, gifts and talents to serve me. And very slowly, as I work in people's lives, they'll see your good works. And they'll give glory to God in heaven. So to encourage Vera, who very honestly said, I prayed and don't see anything happening. He wants to say, but you're my treasured possession. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep praying. Because I am working. And maybe I'll show you that in time. But keep trusting me. I bet her story is actually true for many of us. We pray and pray and pray and don't see anything. But God is saying, keep trusting me because I am at work. Because that's all what it's like to mould culture. I mean, just in terms of application, I want you to think through how you could have an influence on your front line in shaping the culture around you, bringing kingdom values to bear in the place you are. Um, For those of you who run businesses or um, have responsibility for other people in your business, what difference could you make on Monday morning in shaping the culture in which you work? if that's you, I'd really encourage you. There's a men's curry night on the 19th of January, and um, a friend of mine's coming. He's a, probably about mid-50s. He's a multimillionaire. He runs a massive company over in Bedford. But his main goal is to create a culture for his 450 employees that's different to a culture if he wasn't a Christian. And he has a really steady but profound influence on the whole culture and setup. Um, he spends a lot of time with the cleaners and the people who everyone else would just ignore as well as with the directors. And he just very slowly is shaping his culture. And he's going to share a bit in January about how he does that and encourage us with it. Um, if you're at school and you know and trust Jesus and you want to be a, make a difference, how could you use your position of authority in the school if you're a senior boy or a senior girl or in positions where you're asked to lead or do something? How could you have an influence on the other children in the school? Uh, serving rather than all about taking um, how, if you were a, a, a mum or dad, could you have an influence on your family in creating a culture within your family, moulding a culture in your family that helps your children grow up to think about the culture in which they live, to engage with the world? Um, how much do you seek to do that? But wherever your front line is, it's ultimately about saying to God each day, how can I better reflect 
all that you've done for me and how can I better shape and mold the culture I'm in uh, for your glory. We're going to watch a, a little video now which helps um, bring some of this together. Um, I'm encouraged this week that some people have said to me the following weeks, um, why is it all so pink? Is this kind of just a whole sort of modern way of, uh, of kind of doing things these days? The reason is there was something wrong with the lens, um, but we've got the projector lens working, so this is how it should be. Um, so let's watch this and uh, see what Mark has to say to us that might help us mould culture. Thanks. Both my parents came from Glasgow. My father from Russian, Polish, Orthodox Jewish stock, and my mother from a Northern Irish, Celtic-picked, Scottish, communist, Gentile family. Not surprisingly, I'm completely mixed up. And not surprisingly, their union produced a very huggy-huggy, slobber-slobber, kissy-kissy family culture. Now, when it came to visitors, my mum had two rules. If it moves, kiss it. And if it's still moving, feed it. It was our family culture, the way we did things round our home. And that's one definition of culture, the way we do things round here. family has a culture, every workplace, every team, every church, every home group, every front line, a way of doing things around here. Some of it's good, some of it not so good, some of it downright destructive. Now my family culture never struck me as unusual until I got to about 10 years old and my reserved southern English gentile friends would come round. After a while I began to notice their discomfort how they would pad tentatively through the front door like nervous antelope, their ears cocked and their eyes scanning the terrain for danger. And then suddenly they'd whoosh up the stairs faster than Usain Bolt out of the blocks, all to escape the enveloping embrace of the kiss monster. <laughs> now the culture in my home hadn't arisen accidentally. My mum's huggy affection for my friends came out of a whole set of values about community, about hospitality, about food, and about an adult's relationship with her kids' friends. An adult has a duty of care to someone else's child. It is right and good for an adult to show physical affection to someone else's child in greetings and farewells. And it is absolutely imperative that food is offered and that food is eaten. My mother's behaviour emerged out of a set of beliefs. Our beliefs shape our behaviour. If we think eggs are bad for our heart, we don't eat many eggs. But when new research tells us that they aren't, well, bring them on. Scrambled, wet but not runny, with a smidgen of salt and lots of freshly milled black pepper served on crunchy hot toast. Beliefs shape behaviour. So the question is, how might our Christian beliefs, our kingdom values, shape our behaviour and shape a culture on our front lines that is more likely to help people flourish? How can we, as it says in Jeremiah 29.7, not only pray for, but seek the shalom, the peace and prosperity of the front line God has called us to? What's good about the way people do things on your front line? What's worth cheering? And what isn't good, not only for us, but for others. In Romans chapter 12, Paul 
exalts the Christians. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul knows it's pretty easy to end up behaving like everyone else, gossiping, because everyone else does, being a bit too concerned about the sculpting of your abs, because everyone else is. So we look for ways not only to change our own behaviour, but to change the way things are done around us. Perhaps the culture at your gym is very narcissistic, very self-focused. What could you do to make it less so? Well, maybe you might suggest that the Christmas party includes a raffle in aid of kids overseas who need cleft palate surgery, or that the money goes towards a table tennis table for the council's youth club. Perhaps you dislike the way that everyone in your family fiddles with their phones over meals, messes up conversations. So maybe like one family, you make everyone pop their mobiles into a basket before the meal, like a sheriff in the Wild West, confiscating every cowboy's Colt 45 when they ride into town. Bow, wow, 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 wow. Mobiles and Colt 45s can be bad for relationships. Maybe you dislike the way everyone in the retirement home seems to just sit around watching too much TV. So you celebrate everybody's birthday with a multiple choice quiz about their lives so that residents get to know each other. Or you put on a family history hour and relationships deepen. And when a culture becomes more like a kingdom culture, that's fruitfulness. Culture is the way we do things around here. And so it's made up of pretty much everything. The stories we tell, the rituals we have, the rewards that we give, the heroes we admire, the slogans we repeat. Now there's good news and bad news in that. The bad news is that because values are expressed in all those ways, it can be quite hard to change a culture. The good news is that because values are expressed in all those ways, it can be quite easy to find a way to begin to change a culture. Before I tell you a story, you might want to pause the film and discuss some of the positive and negative aspects of the culture of your front line. Here's a true story. Elaine's a head teacher of a primary school in Glasgow. And one day, something really quite bad happened. A 10-year-old boy, a particular 10-year-old boy, who'd had a long history of being a troublemaker, and we'll call him Alex, had gone ballistic in the school playground, shouting and swearing and screaming. A member of staff had gone out to try to defuse the situation, talked to one of the other children, and was pretty convinced that actually Alex was to blame. The second member of staff came up and also was convinced that Alex was to blame, and then a third, and Alex then lost his temper, and he ran out into the school field. Elaine, the head teacher, was informed, and she went out to talk to him. It wasn't me, miss, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. They wouldn't listen. They just wouldn't listen. Well, Elaine believed him, went back into the school and talked to the other child who was involved, who owned up. And then she went to the three members of staff who'd been involved and told them that Alex was innocent. And they went and apologised to him. And subsequently, the other child involved also apologised to Alex. I wonder what strikes you about that particular story. 
Well, one thing is that Elaine really, really listened to Alex. And she didn't prejudge the situation based on his past behavior. An habitual troublemaker learned what it feels like to be treated as if, as if they'd never done anything wrong before, as if the past really is the past. She made sure that justice was done. She showed other people the ways of the king. What was it about Elaine's school that three members of staff should apologize to a child? Well, when Elaine arrived at the school, she decided the kind of culture that she wanted to create. She knew that many cultures end up being blame cultures, where people in authority never, ever apologize. She didn't want a blame culture. She wanted a forgiveness culture. So right from the start, she told parents, she told staff, she told the children that she'd make decisions, but that she'd also probably make some mistakes. And if they didn't like something she did, then they should come and talk to her about it. And if she agreed, she would apologize and then go do something about it. And that's exactly what she's done. So what did Elaine do to mold that culture? She'd spotted a negative in her school's culture. She believed it could change. She identified a kingdom antidote and she gave it a try. Yes, Elaine was the head teacher, but you don't have to be an authority to mold the culture you're in. You don't have to be the boss, the parent or the team captain. Anyone can make a difference. I wonder whether there's something you could try that would make a kingdom difference, make your front line a better place to be, more like the way Jesus would like it to be. So wherever you are this week, Shalom. Forgive me for the, the little uh... Um, Wild West moment in that film. Not quite sure what got into him. He'd clearly just been hugged by his mother. Um, anyway, I, feel, I hope that was helpful though. Um, just to share a little story, I got a text from someone in this church uh, this week who is a partner in a firm. Um, quite responsible. And uh, off the back of last week and the challenge to minister love and grace, this individual decided that rather than leaving all the mugs to mount up, because the junior staff and the cleaners used to always clean it up. He would just take a lead and just clean up and wash all the mugs, wash his mugs and all other people's mugs, just did it, without trying to draw any attention to himself. Apparently another senior partner came up and said to this person, why are you doing that? So the young fry will do that. And he just quietly just responded, um, well, why not? Wouldn't it be good if we all had a go? It was something really simple, and then he just walked away. But gradually, if that person continues to live like that in there, that could slowly, completely transform a culture. Um, so I just want to challenge you to think, what, what could you do this week you know, to build on last week, to think about how you could be useful on your front line in molding culture?